Welcome to the SeaWorld, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about conservation and conflict. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hello. Hey, welcome. So this is season 11. Well done, Jenny, my love. Well done you as well. <laughs> we got there. This is a team effort. It is. It feels like quite a somber topic for the first episode of season 11, but... It is. Really, really important. It is. It's one that's been on the spreadsheet for a long time. Uh, It has. Regular listeners know that we have a spreadsheet of topics that we work through. Also regularly just give in to our whims and do one that isn't... (laughs) On the spreadsheet as well, but this one has been on there like basically since day one. Like it was, it's one of the really early ideas. Yeah. However, um, with the situation in the world, we decided to do mm. it now. Now is the time. So now is the time. Anyway, so to help us with that, seeing as Chloe and I are both very safely in the UK and don't really stray outside of that much, we have a special guest host with us. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, hello, I am Dr. Lisa Moore. I am a senior lecturer in physical geography at the University of the West of England, or UE, Bristol, where I teach on a lot of natural topics. But in my research career, I tend to look at how explosives and ballistics damage heritage in conflict areas. So I am the lead of the Heritage in the Crossfire project. And uh, we do lots and lots of experiments to see how heritage gets damaged and what potential first aids we can offer. Wow. So practical, practical stuff. Immediately, I'm thinking like Mythbusters, but with explosives and heritage. (laughs) (laughs) It's not actually far off um, if you see some of the experiments that we do. Quite often, because this is not usual research we quite often have to make up methodology on the spot just trying things out so yes sometimes it does take a little bit of a myth buster sort of approach to it in our most recent experiments we had to build a couple of structures and the night before i realized that none of us actually knew how to lay a brick so there was a lot of youtube videos and uh, we built some structures and they later blew them up so there is a certain element of uh, blue peter meets Mythbusters wow. to the research. But it is teaching us a lot about how heritage does get damaged during conflict. And that really is uh, the end goal, no matter how we get there. Honestly, I have never heard anything more relatable as a general object conservative other than become an expert on something overnight, please. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll just do that. Don't worry. How did you get into it? Well, so when I was finishing my uh, my PhD back in the day, uh, we just about started seeing a lot of the damage that was happening in the Middle East, uh, the very deliberate destruction. And like a lot of other people, I got very angry about it. Mm. It took me a while to actually just figure out and look at these photos, especially when Palmyra got damaged, to think, well, hang on, I've just finished PhD in, in, in rock weathering this actually is something I can help with. And I thought nobody knows how, for example, when a bullet hits a stone surface, what happens? A couple of weeks later, I went on one of the uh, earlier dates with my now husband. And we were walking around London and walked past Tate Britain. And uh, I looked up and I saw the shrapnel damage on the sides and basically handed in my handbag, said, give me five minutes, scrambled up, 
took lots of photos, came back with completely ripped up tights and everything, like any <laughs> semblance of the nice woman that he was on a date with uh, was gone. But that's really when this, this little sort of intellectual ball started rolling. <laughs> then it took another while because unfortunately the funding for this wasn't easy. And uh, of course I put in lots of applications. It wasn't really sticking, but it became a real sort of project of passion because that anger never left. And that idea that actually there was a niche there, there was something there that I could do to help. So I borrowed equipment. I was very kindly given some stones from a basement that nobody was using anyway. I found some people who were at a shooting range and weren't too busy to shoot these blocks for me. And slowly but surely, I actually managed to generate samples needed for the pilot study and once the pilot study was out there and this took five years it actually started to take off and that's when people started to take some notice of it all i needed was a couple of people who believed in it as well as as much as i did and that group of people has started to form sort of the core team of heritage in the crossfire from there we've actually managed to do much more structural testing and working with places like like kotec we can get like high-speed videos we can see exactly what happens when a ballistic hits a stone surface or in this case, in the last iteration, when uh, a mortar bomb goes off in its vicinity um, and actually do this at a much more professional level. Mm. Wow. I'm just thinking of the sheer scope of this because there are so many different ways of... Humans get very creative in injuring each other and structures. So there's a lot of different things there to be used. So tested on different materials. And then there's all the different things that we actually build things from. That's a lot. What's happening with the data now? Uh, how are people using the data on the ground, as it were? So a lot of what we do is training, mm-hmm. just trying to get that knowledge out there. And then what we do is actually just sit down and talk to partners, whether they're sort of in Northern Africa or the Middle East, or they're partners within the army or in Blue Shield, and basically say, look, this is what we do. How do we make it useful? And of course, you know, our training programs develop as our research develops. We're very much like flying by the seat of our pants at some point, because as you say, there is so much work to be done. Yeah. But what we can do is actually apply it very specifically as well. So we've just finished up a project led by Professor Anna Leona at Durham University and myself at the site of Sabretha in Libya. And uh, their magnificent Roman army amphitheater has been shot at. Uh, with various types of weaponry, but it's also a site that UNESCO is very much involved with. And what we've been doing is actually working with the Department of Antiquities, and we made little training videos, PDFs, we had Zoom meetings, and we basically just showed them step-by-step, this is how you use this equipment, this is the data you get from it, this is how you need to go out and collect this data. And we managed to, as as a team, bring together a phenomenal data set that actually documented all of the damage around the amphitheater. So we had photogrammetry with the drone, so we got nice 3D uh, imagery of all the bullet impacts and some of the RPG impact. And we've got rock surface hardness measurements, so we could be very targeted in saying, well, this section of damage, we really need you to measure, and here's the grid that you can use. We got things like perimeter readings, so we got a really good idea of where, for example, salt is really prevalent in the building. We got data loggers out there to measure temperature, so we could actually have a a good look at how uh, different environmental stressors are working themselves around the amphitheater, and then bring that together to basically say, right, here are clusters of damage. Here is how much damage is being recorded in the deterioration of the stone surfaces. 
Now, this is the damage that it's already building on that we know, like natural damage, so salt weathering, thermal stress, all these things. And then we can bring that together into a structural assessment. And this actually has become, I think, the first comprehensive analysis of recent war damage on a monument within its sort of topographic setting. And a lot of what we are also interested in is things like invisible damage. So damage you can't see on the surface, but we can extrapolate because we've already studied all these processes in great detail with blocks that we've shot at the range 100 miles from here. So it's all about combining that sort of really high-spec scientific knowledge with field techniques that we can then also train other people in and then bringing that all together to do remote assessments. That's amazing. And you can really see the practical implications of that as well in the sort of aftermath and the preparation for damage occurring, if you can see what's going to happen or you can see what has happened. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm actually, um, I guess, fortunate in, in terms of my background is that I've been trained in natural deterioration processes. Like that's, that's, I, I used to work uh, in the deterioration of Southern African rock art. Oh, wow. Conservation isn't about just stabilizing it for tomorrow. It's actually thinking about, you know, how many generations do we want to be able to enjoy this? So it is very much about projecting into the future and basically saying, you know, how do we stabilize this so that it is conserved in a very sustainable and a very sensitive way that is also done in collaboration with those who are actually the owners of this site? Because it is very easy for people from, well, Europe or anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere to go stomping in somewhere that they've never even set foot in before and say, this is what you got to do with your heritage. Yeah. Yeah. What we are concerned with is what is the material damage and what can we advise in terms of sustainable conservation? But I don't actually get involved much in the conservation because I feel that as a, a scientist with my particular background, that is not my place. Well, I suppose there's a lot there to be said for local knowledge. So the, the assessment is the first step. Yeah. And like knowing, knowing all of those things is the important bit. But sort of the next step, that's sort of where local knowledge mm-hmm. of the materials and the, the, the what the structure needs. That might be, you know, when you hand that over. What they need from the site afterwards as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, so that's, you know, the continued use of it and all of that. That's, that's sort of in, in, in their hands as it should be. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't feel that I have much right to make a decision about that. But all I can say is, if you want to preserve this, here are the risks. Here are the current weak points. And here is how that will develop. Now, you know this site. Do you want this restored? Do you want the efforts to be focused elsewhere? Because we shouldn't forget that in conflict areas, resources are so limited. Yeah, We can't just absolutely conserve everything with the latest techniques and the biggest investments. But what we can do is say, if you want to stabilize this, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to pay attention to. Now, if you want to stabilize it or not, that's your business. That's your choice to make. This is the technical advice. I think that's a super interesting point, actually, because I read a paper where uh, I'm actually going to talk to Richard, who wrote the paper uh, in a little bit later in this episode. But it's about Afghanistan and the sort of conflicts that have happened there, but also how sort of what the landscape of priorities are in the aftermath or even ongoing conflict. It's really great that we we're all, you know, pro heritage and we're like, yeah, look after the past. 
of course, obviously, if you're listening to this, you are probably in agreement with that. But it's a really difficult pitch when people need running water and power. Those things are ultimately so much more important in that situation that you can't just go and say, actually, drop all of that. Don't worry about the running water. (laughs) What's really important is to be going to look at this piece of stone right now. You know, it's it it shifts the (laughs) priority landscape so much that it's sort of very presumptuous, particularly of of people from the West to sort of walk in and go, well, this should be your priority. Well, no, I think food production probably is and having electricity again and getting some infrastructure going. But, you know, it's depending on the scale of the conflict and the aftermath that it's a really big ask to have people think about the heritage sort of immediately. And that's something to just sort of keep in mind in these conversations is that it's great, but also there are probably more pressing matters. In a way, though, that's... that. That very shifting of priorities in life to, you know, from all the nice things in life that we like and want and to can we live, that shift in priorities is in a way how heritage becomes so immediately vulnerable. I'm struggling with this episode because, you know, I've never been in a war zone. I've never felt unsafe in that way. And it's it's really difficult, especially now as we know things are happening as we speak. It's really difficult to sort of flippantly say sentences like this. But, you know, in a situation where you know, you know, the tanks are coming and that you've got to leave your museum and that means that the the place is vulnerable, you will feel very much as though the place is vulnerable. And then it is, it can be, you know, looted and shot at and, and everything. But arguably that doesn't change if you remain in the building. I mean, I know that people do and it's, you know, there have definitely been reports both of how incredibly conflicted people feel if they've had to leave. It's unimag- It's an unimaginable choice to make. Like leaving, a, like I suppose it's quite similar to our sort of salvage and disasters episodes of your building's on fire. What do you do? You don't because your life is more important. Exactly. So there's, there's a lot of parallel there for sure. There's the guilt of leaving, but then there's also, well... Even if you stay, which is incredibly brave and people do, it's not like you staying in the building it mm. changes that it might get shot at, if you see what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, you that's not really how it works, unfortunately. A heritage will always get damaged during conflict. And one of the things that we're seeing now um, and we have seen in the last 10 years is very deliberate destruction of heritage yeah. to try and take people's identity down with it. I don't think we should forget how important... Uh, heritages and people's sense of belonging. One of the things that's made my work just a little bit emotionally harder again in the last few weeks is seeing Putin deliberately go for heritage sites, you know, in addition to places where there are kids, there's hospitals. Like it, the the destruction has been mind-blowingly devastating. The only thing we can do to really help that is to basically say, let's build at least a scientific knowledge base that we can rescue as much as possible and we can limit this horrible damage that shouldn't have happened in the first place. But that will happen because there are people there who want that heritage destroyed. And as you say, it doesn't matter if you get a chain of people standing in front of it trying to protect that heritage. It is conflict. It's armed conflict. And of course, people should be running for their lives first and foremost. No building will ever be as important as a human life. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to try and pull that cultural identity back together in the aftermath and do that sensitively and sustainably 
and also with a lot of ownership from those who actually are most emotionally attached to that heritage and who have the the largest claim to it. It's interesting that we're talking talking about sort of heritage being targeted and stuff. It sort of makes me want to bring in the interview with Emma from Blue Shield, which we can listen to now. My name is Dr. Emma Cunler. I have a dual post. I am in part the secretariat of an NGO called the Blue Shield, which is an NGO that protects heritage in armed conflicts. And the secretariat is kind of like the central coordination office of the NGO. But I'm also a researcher at Newcastle University with the UNESCO Chair in Cultural Property Protection and Peace, where I work with Professor Peter Stone, researching heritage protection in armed conflicts. Those are some lovely big hats. <laughs> I'm also the secretary for the UK National Committee of the Blue Shield, and I direct, uh, or co-direct, I should say, a Masters of Research for the university. So pick a hat, any hat. Wow, very important hats as well. Well done. For people who don't know what Blue Shield is, because I'm going to be honest with you, it was a couple of years ago when I first came across what Blue Shield was. What is it? It was originally founded in 1996. So last year was actually our 25th anniversary. And it was founded to be the equivalent of the Red Cross, but for cultural sites. So for museums, archaeological sites, churches, uh, in other religious buildings, for, for places of cultural significance to people. And the original idea was founded uh, based on the blue shield of a piece of law written after World War II called the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in Armed Conflict. And that convention designated a symbol, a blue and white shield, that would be placed on cultural sites the way the Red Cross is placed on uh, hospitals Mm. to designate that they were protected in armed conflict. And then multiple conflicts continued. And so they founded the Blue Shield as an organisation in '96, And it's modelled similarly to the Red Cross. We have national committees around the world Currently, we have 28, and I think by Monday, jump the gun a little, I'll be able to announce that we have 30. We have another four going through the paperwork at the moment. And these are genuinely all around the world. The ones that are being founded is one in Eastern Europe and one in Africa that should have their approval through next week. Amazing. And then we obviously have the international office where I'm based as well. And so the kinds of work we do are providing advice on preparations before a conflict and how you can protect cultural property and what steps need to be taken, advice on the laws around cultural property protection in conflict. So I also do a lot of military training, looking at how armed forces can protect cultural property and the ways that the the law, I would say, constrains their movement, but the things that they need to be aware of, such as internationally protected symbols. And then we also operate in disaster response. So, for example, following the blast in Beirut, our Lebanese National Committee were on the ground within 24 hours. At the international level, we were coordinating funding and the president was on the ground within two days to support them. So that kind of quite comprehensive approach to cultural property protection, as well as a strong focus on illicit trafficking, because it's in times of unrest and whether that is in a disaster or a conflict, that we see looting increases significantly. So we do a lot of work trying to stop illicit trafficking and lobby for better national legislation as well. Yeah, because when I first came across it, I was sort of impressed with the sort of military angle that I guess I hadn't really considered, but it makes perfect sense because it's armed conflict. 
Absolutely. And one of the things you try and stress is this isn't about running around trying to save things in that way, although that happens as well. Yeah. But about teaching people about the steps they can take under law to protect cultural property. I sort of imagined you as sort of a SWAT team that goes in and does stuff, but there's a lot of training behind this, clearly. We do not have an operational arm in that sense. We don't get deployed. The reality is we're actually still quite small. The kinds of training we do are about teaching good practice about how people can work together. And when I say, you know, we do military training, that's not actually, you know, you know, in an active war zone or something, but we will attend military exercises and sort of provide realistic scenarios for the kinds of cultural property and the kinds of situations involving that that they might encounter to help them work through how to respond. In a lot of cases, sites aren't destroyed deliberately or because somebody just didn't care. You know, there's a lot of cases where things get destroyed because nobody knew it was there. So trying to improve the channels of communication between culture and defence. Yeah. With the conflict in Ukraine, I know that there's been a lot of Oh, don't tell people where things are because then it becomes a target. It's a really tough balance. So, for example, in the the wars in the 1990s, in Croatia, for example, they put new shields on their buildings. And in at least one case, and I think if I were to check the record several more, tanks rolled in and deliberately targeted every building with the blue shield on. Yeah. So whilst cultural buildings were targeted anyway, it was basically making it much easier to do that. Mm. But, you know, there are other cases where people have taken deliberate steps not to damage cultural property, knowing what it is. You know, they've, for example, approached a mission a different way. We tend to use a teaching example from uh, Operation Unified Protector in Libya in 2011, where NATO discovered that uh, Gaddafi had placed listening stations, radar stations, around a historic building. It was a it looks like a fort, but it's a Roman fortified farm called Rassal Merga. Mm-hmm. And they were just going to, you know, bomb the listening stations, there were six, six or eight of them. And actually, instead, you know, they changed the type of munitions they were going to use to be small and focused and take out the stations without damaging the site at all. So there are choices you can make if you are determined to protect cultural property. It's very much a question of intent. Yeah, no, exactly right. Uh, and that, that's an important distinction. That's that's amazing. Uh, we've already sort of talked about where in the world you can be found, but it sounds like you have a lot of different groups. Are there other bits where you you feel like you're not as well represented as you'd like to be? Definitely. I mean, personally, I would love to see a lot more committees in Asia. At the moment, we only have the Republic of Korea. Oh, okay. Interesting. So a- Asia is a big blank spot on our map. And to be fair as well, 30 is not a huge number out of the vast number of countries in the world. So we sort of talked about the type of work that you do and and sort of how you do it. Although maybe a dirty question, but like, how are you funded? Are you funded by like UNESCO or is it what? How do you do this work? Until 2017, Blue Shield at the international level was entirely unfunded. It's a completely voluntary organisation. When Professor Peter Stone was granted the UNESCO Chair in Cultural Property and Peace by Newcastle University, The title is very prestigious. It's an excellent thing for a university to have a UNESCO chair. And as part of that, he was granted additional funding by Newcastle University to hire one full-time staff member and one part-time staff member to support the goals of the UNESCO chair. Mm. Those goals are agreed with UNESCO. And one of them was to support the Blue Shield network, which means that as the full-time member of staff working for the Blue Shield, the majority of my job is not, in fact, uh, with my university hat, but to, to support the Blue Shield Network. 
we are entirely funded by Newcastle University for one and a half staff members. And that is the international office plus the president. Wow. At the national level, the majority of our committees are all voluntary uh, with that I know of two paid posts amongst them all. Wow. Uh, both the UK National Committee and the international level are working on major fundraising campaigns at the moment to oh, increase our capabilities. That makes sense. Amazing. So how can people find out more about you or, or join you or support your mission, for example? What can they do? Well, uh, a variety of things. Uh, some national committees do take volunteers. Mm-hmm. People who want to volunteer with their national committee need to understand that the committees themselves are volunteers. So there isn't a lot of capacity to train people. We do get a lot of requests from students wanting experience in the field. And if we could, we would support that in a heartbeat. But somebody who's actually looked at the website for that national committee who has matched their skills to those skills needed, whether that even is just offers of translation, for example, mm. but, or website management. It, it's funny, but most heritage staff are not, in fact, website managers. And somebody offering to just assist with jobs like that is often a lot more welcome than people would realise. You can find all of our national committees on the Blue Shield website, which is uh, www.thebueshield.org. And we're currently transitioning to a new website domain. So just as this goes live, our website will probably be down. But when it comes back up again, we have a whole section devoted to finding the contact details of our national committees. Amazing. If you're listening to this in a country that doesn't have a national committee, we have a little section that shows them all on a map. Uh, Please do consider founding one. We don't have actually any requirements in terms of professional ability per se. We look for people with heritage sector experience and the ability to build networks across their entire national heritage sector. And we have some requirements about those networks and about the expertise we need to be in the final committee. But, uh, you know, we're keen to support new committees forming. And obviously those national committees are always keen to receive donations to expand their work. So do please have a look and consider it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Emma. And it's it's been lovely hearing about your work. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. It's so interesting, isn't it? That the accidental versus versus intentional damage. Because a lot of the things I've been reading when preparing for this episode has been like, you know, it, obviously there is the stage of what can we salvage, what can we rescue, but it's also... They're not just going in to see, you know, how many objects they can get out of the rubble. It's also collecting evidence for war crimes. Basically, it's it's a crime scene. It's sort of no longer just heritage. It's this has happened to us. This has been done to us. It's interesting that we talk about sort of damage and identity and things like that, because it makes me think of there will be numerous ones across Europe, actually, you know, sort of testaments to the various world wars where people have left particularly churches in a ruined state rather than rebuilding them. They've left them as they are, as sort of uh, visual reminders in the urban landscape that this is something that happened here. Here's a scar. Uh, whilst the rest of the city may have been rebuilt around it. I mean, it's something that on a much smaller level we might deal with as objects conservators. You know, if something, you know, if I'm working on a 
World War helmet that has a bullet hole in it. It's not like I'm going to patch that up. <laughs> it is what tells the story. So it sometimes I would guess that people might opt not to rebuild because sometimes it's a it's a powerful reminder of a previous conflict that might actually be a preferable option in in a weird way. That a reminder is more important than a a new museum building or a new church. Well, that's been kind of interesting in the work that we've been doing because we have to treat war damage as potential heritage. Yeah. So you're layering heritage on heritage. Yeah. Damage to heritage and, and this new heritage in its own right can be either something that is that becomes commemorative and something that is actually yeah. important in the way that you see, for example, the blitz damage around, around London. But equally, it can also be very divisive because if there are, say, if there's a civil war, and you get two groups who live in the same neighborhoods and they have to somehow stitch a society back together afterwards, then these constant reminders of a conflict are not going to help with that. So it can either be a really interesting new layer of heritage, something that tells a part of the history of that building. But equally, we should leave the option open that actually it's not a good thing to have this commemorative damage there constantly remind people what happened no that's true you know there, there's something to be said for healing as well and healing looks different for different cultures different uh groups it, you know it, it does ultimately depend on sort of what the nature of the conflict was of course the civil war will always come with a particular set of baggage that is difficult to deal with it's a very different ballpark from say an invasion uh, by a, another foreign power yeah quite often it also just gets absorbed into the, the emotional landscape. Um, I was doing some work in Uganda uh, a couple of years ago, and there were still quite a lot of bullet impacts that were associated with Idi Amin. And the, the general sort of feel about it seemed to be just shrug and say, yeah, that was a bad time. You know, it's part of that building now. We don't even see it anymore. But then that's also healing is, you know, as, yeah. a, as a society, that's sort of, it, it just looks different in different parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to figure out sort of what the different approaches I've seen coming out of Ukraine at the moment in terms of how they're protecting their heritage. I sort of figured that it's sort of part of a three-prong approach. It's document, move or protect in situ. That's sort of the things that I've seen. And there have been some amazing pictures coming from, say, museums where it was sort of empty exhibition cases and plinths where yeah i've been thinking a lot about the portable heritage thing. yeah and things have been moved to secure locations or secure-ish uh, different locations shall we say undisclosed mm. locations usually underground and protected by a lot of barbed wire and brave people yeah then protected in situ there are fantastic photos out there of statues piled high with sandbags yeah so that the, there have been some very striking examples of how people are protecting things. As for documentation, I mean, I've definitely seen headlines about how um, archivists are, you know, burning the candle at both ends by just sitting there and scanning things before they have to leave the building in a desperate attempt to sort of uh, hopefully digitize things just in case it gets burned to the ground. And I, I think even non-heritage people sort of go, oh, Jesus, you know, when they see that. Mm, there's a lot of really recent previous examples as well though aren't there especially with libraries and things like that that oh, people do love burning libraries don't they yeah it's long history of that yeah well quite yeah exactly 
There's actually been a really interesting paper that was recently come out by uh, Frederick Rosen at the uh, University of Copenhagen. And he's talking about the hybrid war as the new warfare. And that's something that we've seen very much in this most recent conflict as well, all the um, economic sanctions, the social media getting involved. This war is being fought on many more levels than man-to-man combat. Uh, another angle to bring in is digital heritage, because I know that we're, we tend to be quite physical people in terms of we like touching objects and buildings. But to bring in the digital angle here, there was a real worry when this conflict broke out, and quite rightly so, about the digital heritage of Ukraine. And there's a particularly great initiative called Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online, which I do believe is shortened to Suko. There we go. And I had a bit of a Twitter conversation with the sort of three people who originally came together and made this happen. Obviously, they, they don't do it themselves. They have thousands of volunteers and they are collaborating with an awful lot of clever tech people, in addition to being quite clever tech people themselves. They are doing fantastic work. I talked to Quinn, Anna and Sebastian, who are sort of the 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 admins of this project. And essentially they are, I was going to say heritage people, but I think it's a bit broader than that. Uh, I'm going to go with humanities people. Um, uh, I think Anna's a uh, music librarian, I want to say. I think Quinn works in linguistic. And Sebastian is a digital historian. And uh, these guys aren't actually uh, in or from Ukraine, uh, but essentially uh, they work in different parts of the world. I want to say Austria and America. I want to say. And they saw the conflict kick off and they all had similar parallel ideas and decided to combine forces, from what I can tell, where they wanted to save online heritage. Uh, so things like uh, websites and catalogues online from museums. I think Anna initially started this by uh, thinking about musical heritage in particular, so music archives and stuff like that. They they combined forces and using things like web trawlers and anyone who's used the Internet Wayback Machine at archive.org has encountered some of the sort of results from that, because that's sort of what these sorts of things do. They save web pages. But usually with archive.org and stuff, it's a very superficial save. It might be the front page, not all the other pages, for example. So it's sort of like a snapshot of the internet. It's not a complete archive as such. It depends, but they've been using this sort of capture technology and web trawling stuff uh, on a massive scale, especially thanks to all of their volunteers, so that they are saving web pages, archives, all that stuff that is at risk of being lost. It's so easy for us to think that everything on the internet lasts forever. That isn't even remotely true. If someone doesn't pay their hosting bill, if someone gets hacked, and not to mention the fact that all these things are stored on physical media of some sort out there, server farms need power to work. And if that infrastructure isn't there, if the building that server farm is in gets bombed, it does not exist anymore, nor does the data on it. There might be a backup somewhere, but it's frankly not that likely. And that sort of thing. So they have been working their butts off, basically, to save all this marvellous stuff. And I spoke to them and they the thing that they said that really stuck with me was that they hope they don't need to. They're doing all this work, all this work, and they're hoping it's completely unnecessary. That's sort of beautiful to me in that it's, let's hope we don't need it. Let's hope it all stays exactly as it is and that nothing happens to these things. It's kind of the foundation of all disaster planning, isn't it? 
Yeah, let's hope we don't need it. I hope we don't get flooded. I hope we don't have to deal yeah. with warfare. I hope we don't have a terrorist yeah. attack. In some ways, there's something very hopeful about disaster planning. Exactly. I think that's what that was also oddly beautiful. Not only that these three people have managed to make all of this happen in an extremely short amount of time. Uh, and again, yes, they have help, but the, it's like the vision of these people to do this. And they were telling me how amazed they are that they're working so well together and sort of, I'm going to say that maybe because they're not part of one big organization, they're not an organization, they're individuals wanting to do this. They're working smoothly, fast, in a way that would not be possible if everything had to go by a committee <laughs> or, um, you know, in some ways they can be fast in a way that often we maybe can't. Mm. So, which is another thing that I really appreciate because here speed was really of the essence. I mean, I really like that you can actually get involved on a grassroots level. Like you can just be part of this, which is, of course, lovely. They do need volunteers, by the way, uh, still, especially if you have the right language skills, because one of the things that they're doing is they are trying to quality control these things so that they do actually get everything and that it's it's capturing things correctly and stuff like that. Uh, so, the, you know, if, if you have the appropriate language skills, please do get in touch with them because they're doing amazing stuff. I have to say, I really admire this when people do a thing they see something awful and they do a thing about it <laughs> they do a thing uh, it's the same with you lisa that you you've got angry and you turn the anger into something science i turned anger into science <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've just been watching the news about ukraine and it's just been like you just scroll through and go oh, that's bad isn't it that's awful. Oh, look at this. This is bad as well. Oh, fuck. And and that's it. And I haven't done anything. And I've been, felt just powerless, completely powerless. Oh, I better go to work then. While people die and heritage is destroyed. Yeah. It's defeating. It is a little bit. That's true. Sorry, ran over. Well done, everyone who's doing a thing. Yeah, well done. You're amazing. You're amazing. You are amazing. Yes. Volunteer if you can, if you have the yeah, skills. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about an element of physical saving that we haven't brought up yet sure and that is what is essentially looting but there are so many examples of um museums looted firstly by the invaders for example yes nazi stealing etc <laughs> yeah that's not the phrase i know it's not the phrase i just can't think of what the phrase is we know what i mean i mean it's probably not long enough ago to be flippant about that but it you know indeed so many films about it indeed one of them is indiana jones it belongs in a museum <laughs> it belongs in a museum um, <laughs> um and then there's the the looting from you know the the people who see things and it's it's their cultural heritage and they steal it and they take it away and then it doesn't get bombed i mean but theft is an agent of deterioration okay yes so oh uh, yeah we we have a couple of different things to unpick here yeah. i mean there are many reasons why looting might occur and who it might occur by, by uh, yeah. who, who, who might be the perpetrators here yeah, uh, so word. it can be invading forces mm -hmm. or you know that sort of thing yes sure that has been seen very recently i have to say that sort of thing happens equally the local population can yeah. take things now that might be for fairly innocent reasons like oh this is nice i'll just keep it we wanted to save it yeah or i'll keep that in my living room mm. at least it doesn't get destroyed yeah sure 
or it can be for other reasons like I have no money for food I will sell this to whoever walks past yeah you know so there are many layers here of yeah problematic stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. with looting obviously it would be nice if no looting happened at all it's the difference between safekeeping and looting Mm -hmm. and looting is for personal financial gain yeah I think one of the issues and obviously I'm not an expert on this whatsoever but a lot of the true financial gain from looting isn't actually in the country itself you do get people who are digging up artifacts and selling them on for three four five dollars which are then sold on the black market for twenty thousand dollars by organized crime Mm. with very sophisticated routing through different countries to try and create a provenance trail and it's it is immensely complex so a lot of the yelling that happens at people who are caught in conflict zones and are digging things up just to make a few bucks to keep their family alive Mm. i have a hard time judging that harshly yeah i Mm. mean that that's an incredibly different situation yes we might not like it but on the other hand they are trying to feed their families you know it's not (sighs) Mm. you've got to have some empathy there absolutely that's obviously a really different situation from say you know soldiers coming in and taking stuff and yeah that's straight out looting for fa- personal financial gain that is sort of outside of a desperate sort of life or death situation mm, yeah oh man i just looked up i was thinking of an example of the iraq museum in the 2003 invasion because i was thinking of you know it, that's a long time ago now perhaps we could you know is is it possibly a measure of how much came back to the museum as a measure of you know what's been stolen and then sold on the black market and then how much has been rescued and then returned you know in a in an unofficial capacity i'm sure i read something that was something like only 20% has returned or has been returned in the last 20 years staff removed and stored eight over 8000 artifacts while looting took 15000 objects 7,000 have been recovered, 8,000 remain unaccounted for. So of that... They're doing way better than I thought. That's a very high number. Well done. I don't know how they've been accounted for. Have they been, you know, offered back up? Have they... And what does accounted for? Does that mean, oh, we've now seen that this is in the private hands of somebody else? Could be. It doesn't say returned, so... No, no. Maybe is that a third? Is that is that roughly a third of them haven't come back? That's not bad. Yeah. 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 That's very impressive. Even if it's just we know where it is as opposed to we have it back. I mean, it's better than fragments on the floor, is it? Is it better than fragments on the floor? Because so, of course, some of the problem is that sometimes you don't know what happens to these things just because you assume mm. that they've been sold off as they were they may in fact have been dismantled or yeah they're groups of objects that have then been dispersed they're all, they're all worse than that you know melted down mm. or the oh god you said the worst <laughs> I, I did i know uh sometimes <sighs> sometimes these things are not happy things right often Pe- people need raw materials sometimes in a really horrific way or it's easier to sell raw materials than it is to sell the actual item because people might recognize that etc uh, obviously that's a whole can of worms and it makes every conservator sad so <laughs> now that now that we made everyone cry again can we move on <laughs> uh how do we turn this round to a nice happy ending 
I thought to, to, to maybe cheer us up a little bit. I mean, yes, uh, I would like to basically propose that we listen to the interview with IAC now because they have a nice funding pot open and stuff. And I just wanted to ask some questions about that. Oh. So well, let's listen to that. Okay. Today, we're talking a lot about conflict. And uh, in particular, of course, you know, we're all very concerned about our colleagues in Ukraine and everything that's happening there, both to, of course, human lives, but also to cultural heritage. Um, So to talk about some of the responses to that, um, I've got a special guest with me. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks, Jenny. Yes, my name's Sarah Stanage. I'm the Executive Director at IIC, the International Institute for Conservation. I saw several amazing tweets and retweets from your colleagues who are managing the Twitter feed. And uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was the funding pot that you've opened up as a way of supporting people. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that? Of course. I mean, you've mentioned actually the the IC communications team who were superb volunteers who are supporting the the social media channels for IC, but they're rooted all over the world as well. And like, like us at IC, we're, we're watching these events unfold and the speed actually in terms of the invasion. And it was quite breathtaking, heartbreaking to see. So certainly within IIC, we wanted to be acting fast as nimbly as we could to support colleagues. So we adapted, actually reshaped one of our main funds, which is the Opportunities Fund that supports and it will support conservators who are seeking refuge, but in a way that can co-fund placements and fellowships and scholarships. And I think that's something that will be needed certainly in the short term as countries start opening up in terms of the visa protocols. And obviously in, in some countries that's more complicated than others, as we know, but it's just to have a fund that's ready at a ready point to support individuals that might need help. And we, we have had members that have got in touch do you need help? So we were pleased to be able to react as, as quickly as we could. There'll be more that's needed, I think. I think the point we're at now is just staying alive to some of the challenges that, that are coming about now and we're facing, yeah. but also just seeing the amazing response actually internationally to what is effectively a threat on world peace. And you know, we've seen so many sort of efforts from international bodies now coming forward, which is great to see. And we've I think we've become you know, one of those important trusted sites for yeah. information. That's something we've been really keen to make sure we can maintain for the global community as well with conservation. Of course, pretty much every organisation under the sun has put out statements about how they, you know, yeah. sympathetic or supporting or whatever they're doing. That's been lovely to see, but it has been a lot. It's been hard to sift through that and find the bits that are I was going to say actually helpful. That sounds really mean. But, you know, no, the, no. the bits where you can be more actively helpful, like it's good to show solidarity. But if you can go a step further and actually, you know, like um, do something more practical, like send supplies or support with money or take someone in, yeah. then that's obviously a, a, a sort of a more impactful maybe um, thing. And it's been really good to have the IAC website as a, as a sort of resource hub for that, because there's been a lot of tweets and articles and uh, yeah, that, there's a lot to go through. So it's really good to have a, a one sort of source that you can go to. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been hugely appreciated just for, just for the sake of this episode. And I'm sure it's true for many people out there who are uh, feeling like they really want to do something. So that is fantastic. Um, really good to see the fund as well, because because I have seen parallels in in other um, sectors uh, about uh, people offering, you know, like studio space or uh, taking people yeah. in or trying to fund people. 
within conservation we're we're a close family internationally i mean it's it's a relatively small sector compared to others and i think as a result there's such you know a good heart i think within conservation as well in, in terms of helping um obviously we are a caring profession but i think ultimately extending that to colleagues you know that's what we saw the outpouring i think at the beginning in terms of the the number of solidarity statements that were issued but you, you're right you know there needs to be that sort of grounded action it's really important to see and actually the response as well from international bodies is really important but yeah I mean there's there's a still a lot um to more that's needed and I'm sure there'll be a lot more to do um over the coming months as this this unfolds and I think we, we've certainly seen initiatives again sort of these are the ones that we're signposting for example like SUCO which is the brilliant sort of online initiative to save Ukrainian cultural heritage online and but it also made me think as well about sort of really important points of coordination because you know, sadly this isn't the only conflict and no. there are many others and that's where I think we do need to reflect on how um, response goes in. There are very there are a number of really good organisations internationally that are dedicated to supporting in conflict zones, like Aleph, for example. And again, they've put in, they've put a, a fund in, I think, of just around two million US dollars, which is great for going in for materials and doing things like inventories, um, as well as more coordinated support for heritage workers and cultural workers. So I think that's coming together, mm. and we've, we're seeing that now. As I say, I think there's a lot more to come. I think sort of post-conflict and then it's a, a case of rebuilding and recovery and you know there'll be a great effort needed on that and again huge efforts going on I think internationally to start raising funds for that. Yeah do you guys have anything more in the pipeline or is it like you're sort of really um, adapting and thinking on your feet um, rather than anything or? Hopefully yes we're, we're, so we are nimble as I sort of mentioned we'll, we'll, we'll do it was, and it is about responding to the needs as, as we see them I mean the strength of IC is its members ultimately and you know make sure we're responding to the needs of our members and that's incredibly important so yes we'll keep adapting and reshaping initiatives as we need to I, mean, I will just say one of the the best initiatives I think we've run over the last couple of years through the pandemic was our mentoring program mm. focused on leadership because it just became that point of solidarity and support for for members who were you know working through some pretty tough conditions yeah. including in hostile environments so you know just being able to have initiatives like that um that will help and support and that's sort of where we're, we're looking to focus our energy and our time yeah oh that's fantastic thank you for joining us no thank you jenny take care <laughs> Uh, also noteworthy to say that there are um, other sort of resource yeah. um, hubs and funding pots available. I think not so much for necessarily individuals, but I know that Nordiska Museet in Sweden has basically started a, a funding pot as well to help the national museums in Ukraine with money for supplies and stuff like that and for conservation work and all that sort of stuff. So that's grand. I know there have been several uh, call-outs for... Um, materials and stuff if you've got spare conservation materials for example and stuff lying around your museum that you're not using then they can be sent as aid essentially to to ukraine which is quite nice that's i mean if you need some hope in humanity it's that people would love to just pack up their natural gloves and their tyvek you know that's that's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. so th there are definitely ways that you can help like you can if you have spare money you can obviously give money but you can also contribute things like supplies and expertise and all sorts of things like that like there are small ways that you can help very much with the cultural heritage angle of this 
Jenny from the future here. Well, I, I suppose it's not your future. It's just the future in which the episode was recorded. Doesn't really matter. Time travel is messy. The main thing is, I wanted to give an update. Since we recorded this episode, Icon has created its own little uh, resource hub page, signposting people to a number of different things that they can support or that they might find useful, much like the IIC is. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, on the off chance that you're listening to this in time, because the episode is out on the 23rd of March 2022, but on the 24th, in the evening, there is actually uh, a sort of event, um, I think some sort of brainstorming session that Icon is putting on. Uh, it's called Ukraine Supporting Cultural Heritage and Conservation Colleagues. Basically, you can join in in the evening and talk about what we can do as a profession. It says that the themes for the meeting are likely to include fundraising, sending conservation materials to Ukraine, sponsoring refugees, policy actions and planning for reconstruction once peace is re-established. So it's not necessarily a set agenda. I think uh, people turn up and, and you know, make the most of it. I'll be going and uh, maybe maybe I'll see you there. And uh, if possible, we'll try to tweet about it or link to things. I don't know how this is going to work, to be honest. Just so you're aware, there is a thing. And go to the thing if you can. And if not read about it later, I guess. Back to your scheduled podcast. Another thing that I, I really wanted to put out there is that there have been several things of, I've seen in academia that this sort of, this thing where universities are hoping to have funded places and stuff for researchers coming out of Ukraine so that they can have somewhere to continue their work, which is beautiful. I've seen the artist community, like for some reason, in particular, people who work with ceramics who are opening up their studios and art spaces to fleeing artists from Ukraine to continue doing their thing, which is beautiful. And I would love to see a comfort, a conservator scheme where we can take in conservators or collections care people who are coming out of Ukraine and they just give them somewhere to keep doing their thing even if they can't do it with the things that they usually do because hey I think that would be a beautiful thing to just share studio space with people who would just like to continue being conservators if they'd like to be I would love that to be a thing because that's really cute I'm just suggesting it guys <laughs> I have an extremely small room in Kimarthen would you like to come? <laughs> I can take one person <laughs> I do think it is good to just keep an eye on the good things that are happening. Yeah. You know, this this whole podcast, a lot of the talk has been obviously about destruction and, and the, the horrors that come with conflict. But equally, there's a lot of talk of like people doing their thing. You know, you, you, you talk to someone like Emma Cundiff of Blue Shield and you realize that Blue Shield is really trying to rescue heritage where they can. Like for every bad thing that happens, there'll be a good person trying to do something good to rescue or stabilize or otherwise protect. Some of the work that we've been doing with the Department of Antiquities in Libya, like those people are fantastic and they will climb every rickety ladder, even though we tell them not to, (laughs) to get the data to help rescue their heritage. That's something that I think is quite often forgotten. We keep talking about the bad guys. We keep talking about the the casualties and we have to talk about this. But equally, we shouldn't forget that there are so many people trying to do something good to either prevent something bad from happening or mitigate the fallout of it. 
And that's something to also keep an eye on. Humans aren't all bad. No, some of them are. And some of them really, really aren't. And a lot of us fall somewhere in the vast grey zone in the middle. (laughs) But we try. (laughs) We try. We may not be saints, but we try anyway. You both made me cry. (laughs) Oh, You're both beautiful people. Well, so are you. And there are so many beautiful people in the world. Yes. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks very much. That's most of the episode done. However, I did get one more last minute interview. And here it is. My name is Richard Mulholland. I am a lecturer and research fellow at Northumbria University, where I I teach on the Conservation of Fine Art MA program, um, um, specifically on the works on paper um, strand. I distinctly remember a wonderful talk that you gave at an ICON conference a couple of years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved with all that? Certainly. I um, became involved, I suppose, through a series of random events, as often happens, I think, with these things in our profession. I was approached by a a colleague, uh, someone who I, a, a colleague that I studied with, actually, and she had been approached by a consultancy firm who was working for an NGO in Afghanistan to try and find some expertise on conservation on and training in easel paintings and works on paper for the Afghan National Gallery collection that had been damaged during the conflict. So to rewind a little bit, this NGO in Afghanistan, the Foundation for Culture and Civil Society, had gotten funding from the British Council's Cultural Protection Fund to carry out a sort of uh, conditions survey and, 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 and a needs evaluation on the collection at the National Gallery. Now, previously, there have been a number of projects, of course, around the Buddha, uh, the Bamayan Buddhas that had been destroyed, and also in the National Museum collection, which uh, some of, mm. some of which had been destroyed in two thousand and one by the Taliban, and 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 much of which had been damaged in the preceding sort of twenty years of conflict. But very little been carried out on on both the collection at the National Gallery and also at the uh, National Archives. So we went over to Kabul in 2018, carried out a, a sort of initial capacity building study, see what was needed and to assess the collection. We, we assessed about um, 50 of the worst damaged paintings in the National Gallery collection. And we also visited the National Archives to assess what they might need. Um, on the back of that, we then went back working working also with a Afghan Canadian consultancy firm um, called SNN Consultancy and we, we we applied for another round of funding to actually go in equip two conservation labs at uh, the National Gallery carry out conservation on site but also crucially to um, carry out a training course in sort of very basic collections care collections management for uh, Afghan professionals. And so that's what we did in, in, in 2019. We went over for about five weeks and we brought over a wealth of material from the UK and set up two studios there. We fully conserved about 30 objects, paintings and paper. I should say working also with my colleague Elsa Guerrero, who is director of um, the International Fine Arts Conservation Studios in uh, in Bristol. So 
she did the paintings, I did the paper, and also a paintings and a paper conservator that we contracted for the project. So in, in all in all, we, we'd spent probably all together about seven weeks in, in, in Kabul for those two projects, uh, serving the collections and uh, carrying out training. Wow. So you were training people alongside at the same time as you were doing all of this. Yeah. The gallery doesn't have conservators as uh, per se, as we would think of them. They have a general collection of staff who are curators, conservators, collections managers. There are conservators who have been essentially repairing damage to paintings, but obviously with, with zero background knowledge on conservation techniques and just really carrying things out as they could as they went along. Do, doing their best is what I'm hearing, you know, in the circumstances. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Doing their best. Um, and and in, in many ways, using more traditional techniques as well, you know, not having mm. access to conservation literature in local languages, not having access to materials. They, you know, they've been carrying out um, repairs using local, you know, ad- uh, traditional adhesives, for example, that they've, uh, you know, they've they've used for hundreds of years in Afghanistan. Oh, that must have been a really interesting project. Yeah, it's it's not your average conservation project when just before you travel, you have to write a proof of life document for insurance purposes oh. and also to wear uh, bulletproof vests and travel in a Category 6 armoured vehicle. Wow, that's, that is a very different world. What do you feel the impact was of, of you guys having been there? And do you feel like you have a lasting legacy in terms of like the training you've provided and stuff? I think that's a, it's quite a difficult point. Um, in terms of the sustainability of these projects in general is, is, is questionable because by the nature of how we tend to work in conflict zones or in, or in, uh, with these projects, they tend to be very short term. We, we go in, we do a couple yeah. of weeks training and we leave. So the sustainability is, is definitely something that we need to work on. I think in this area, of, um, I feel very strongly about that. It's quite problematic, in fact. And there have been situations where we have, as a profession, visited conflict zones and, and developing countries and really not had the impact that we would have otherwise had were there to have been a, a longer, um, were there to be more sustainable goals, more, more, more planning, more conservation planning, conservation management. Yeah. And, it, it, and to be fair, it's also cultural, particularly in Afghanistan. The museum professionals want to see how they completely restore something from beginning to end and it's a different expectation, I suppose. Very yeah. different expectation. And again, I, I point out in my paper that, you know, that that's not just a, a, a naive approach on their behalf. It's, it's more, you know, Afghanistan in particular, you know, that the complete restoration of something that had been otherwise thought to have been destroyed completely is, you know, I think is seen by many, um, heritage professionals as a, as a sort of social and um, political victory over the tyranny of, of what had gone before. So, um, managing expectations, I think, is a is a is a good thing. But at the same time, the expectation was to restore individual objects while at the same time not ignoring the fact that storage areas, the fabric of the building, even employability and a trans, uh, uh, succession planning was was almost um, non-existent really in the in the culture. Yeah, because you you've written a paper sort of about this exact sort of thing. Would you would you like to tell us a little bit about it? We'll link to it as well. <laughs> Yes, please do. Um, the, uh, the, the, the paper was really born out of the project, but also out of my, I, I suppose, frustration, perhaps, at not really understanding how quite to, to pitch 
the training to a let's say a different culture. I think the cultural expectations in terms of education yeah. are very different. And what, what I attempted to point out, I think, in my paper was that the the traditional pedagogies that we are exposed to in our conservation training in, let's say, the Eurocentric zone, we tend to presume that those are the same for everybody, that the, that those will apply to all cultures. And to be, to be, you know, highly critical, we often, whether intentional or, or not, give the impression that the West is best. So we, we've, we've achieved this level of mastery of, um, in terms of preservation of heritage. And we will pass that on to you. Now, you know, that's, the, the motivations are always well intentioned there. However, what what it has some colonial overtones, shall we say? It definitely has some colonial overtones, and and certainly for back you know in the early days of the profession, that was the that was the key sort of motivation. However, um, the the literature seems to be quite clear on the fact that for students, and this applies to students who come to our universities from let's say more traditional cultures too. If they don't have previous experience of learning in that sort of values-driven, self-reflective, self-directed way, a discursive environment, they find it very hard to engage mm. with that. And that, that even uh, some interesting research from uh, about 2018 actually showed that despite uh, most university lecturers in the, in the data set in the UK sort of identifying themselves as these kind of constructivist pedagogues, they, they find it very hard to engage students in self-reflective discussion-based learning. And this was very much my experience in Afghanistan. I, I you know, we, we would set up workshops where we would ask students to work, students being professionals, yeah. to work in groups and discuss things and try and find outcomes. And that was extraordinarily difficult for them. They were expecting an expert to come to the front and tell them how to restore something from yeah. being damage to being completely repaired um, and I, I, there, there's an adjustment there I think that we have to make yeah. when we go to different cultures. Yeah that is really interesting I, I I have read the paper and it's it's a very good one so I would encourage anyone listening to go and read it and we have been touching on some of the topics throughout this episode uh, actually that, that come up in it. We, we have to be aware that cultural heritage and conservation by extension all contributes to this idea of soft diplomacy and can be, you know, used to impact outcomes that are, are un, unintentional. Certainly, protection of heritage, a very obvious case, was see, cited as a key outcome in the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. It's, in, it's written into the UN, uh, the UN Security Resolution, um, and particularly on the sanctions. And if you follow that thread, you know, the, the impact of sanctions on the local people was quite uh, significant. So very much... Uh, it's very much true that we, you know we are not uh, a, a neutral party in this um, in this sort of overall use of heritage in 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 both in conflict and post post conflict. We have to uh, we have to figure out what we are going to do to engage with cultural heritage in the region. Obviously, for the people of Afghanistan, they are just about on the edge of a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. So, cultural heritage is is of, of no interest to them. And when we think about sustainability, as someone pointed out to me the other day, it's very hard to sit, to talk about the future of cultural heritage collections and how they will look in 50 years when your future is lunch. Yeah. In a way, it's positive in the sense that the Taliban have no interest in cultural heritage at the moment. They've opened the museum, they've opened the gallery, but it's a very low priority. They've made some noises towards protection of heritage, which is good. It shows promise 
not to descend to how it was in the late 1990s. No, oh, oh, that's somewhat heartening to hear, I have to say. I mean, I'll, I'll take any good news at, at this point in time, I guess. Um, yeah, I know it's not, not, a, not a time for good news at the moment. But it's been lovely to hear about your work and uh, what you guys have been doing. Some great insights. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thanks so much, Jenny. Normally I would do a Patreon pitch here and welcome new patrons on board, but I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to save it for next time because this time it feels more appropriate to ask you to donate to humanitarian aid or one of the many organizations trying to help the cultural and heritage sector in conflict zones, in places where there's war. I guess at the end of this episode, we just really wanted you to feel like there were options, like you have some agency, and sometimes that can just be giving some change to a good cause. And yeah, that's it, guys. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word, and you've been listening to Lisa Moll, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about conservation standards. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at the Seaword Podcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I think maybe that's one of the reasons I'm I'm struggling with this episode. I'm just like, oh, just can we not war? Can we just not war? Like, obviously, don't. <laughs> obviously, let's just not war.